Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Isaiah 40 begins what we call the Book of Consolation. If you were to talk to a Hebrew rabbi, he would tell you that from chapter 40 to the end of the Book of Isaiah, to the Hebrew, to the Jewish people, is called the Book of Consolation. The reason for that is it's the good news after Isaiah has delivered what ostensibly has been the bad news, that the Assyrians were coming, it was going to be problematic, Uh, that after them, following them, will be the Babylonian captivity. But this begins the New Testament section. So I shared with you, Dr. Henry Ironsides uh, called this the the Bible in miniature. And while the chapter and verse designations were added centuries later, uh, they didn't have them in the original text, it is also true that people throughout history have looked at this and said there's such a radical change that there might even have been two Isaiahs. And because the Lord Jesus himself quoted from both parts of Isaiah and attributed them to the prophet Isaiah, I I believe that this is a singular Isaiah. And he gives a message uh, that is the hopeful message that the people needed. Uh, It's going to begin with tonight, the, the prophecy of John the Baptist. And by the time we get to chapter 65, Uh, we're going to see the prophecy of a new heaven and a new earth. So that's pretty close to how the New Testament begins and how the New Testament ends, if you will. And so if you were to look in Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel as John the Baptist is meeting uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the people at the River Jordan, he actually quotes here from Isaiah chapter 40. And so as we begin this journey uh, through the remaining uh, portion here, the last 27 chapters uh, of the book of Isaiah, you're going to see the parallels uh, that you would expect to see if a message of grace was going to come forth out of this. Um, there is a general outline that's contained here in the last uh, 27 chapters, and it's really a threefold outline or a three part outline in chapters 40 to 48 emphasize the greatness of God. God the Father very specifically, and that is in contrast to heathen idols. And so as you look back in the Old Testament section, which we've now finished in the first 39 chapters, there was a lot of emphasis on what happened because the Jewish people relied on the world, relied on those heathen idols. And so we're now going to get the opposite of that. In in chapters really 40 to 66, the totality of it, he's kind of looking ahead and so in, this, in the second portion, you're going to see this emphasis on, on this, this incredible proclamation of the servant who will come, the Messiah who will come, the suffering servant. And it'll finish with a view of the, of the eternal kingdom, of that, the last days, as we would call it in a New Testament vernacular. And so the heart of this is what, I and many before me have called the the Mount Everest uh, of all of Messianic prophecy. And it's uh, really chapters 49 to 57, but very specifically it is 52 and 53. This incredible picture um, that is so precise that for centuries, biblical scholars believed it had to have been added after the New Testament period. Now, the reason I say that to you is because we now have multiple copies of the book of Isaiah that have been dated to at least 212 BC. And unfortunately, for those who say this was added, both chapter 52 and chapter 53, as we know them, that portion of the book of Isaiah exists in the text in all four complete copies of the book of Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we know that the book of Isaiah was penned before Jesus walked on this earth. And so what the book of Isaiah said about Messiah, it said before Messiah came. 
And so it's a beautiful picture of how God comforts his people. And remember that Isaiah is now comforting this group of Jewish people who's going to return uh, from captivity in Babylon. And, and, and these are definitely words of, of consolation to them. You're going to see a focus on the Trinity, the whole work. You're going to see a work of the Spirit. You're going to see a work of the Son. And so as we begin here in chapter 40, this new covenant portion of, in the Old Testament, you're going to see a focus on several things. And one is the comfort of the Lord. And I know for me right now, uh, I need the comfort of the Lord. I'm sure many of you do. Uh, there are so many things going on in our world that uh, it's just like, Lord, please help. Uh, if you don't, we're, we're not sure where we're going to go. You're going to see the assurance of him desiring for us to not fear. Uh, I, I can't even tell you how many people I've, I've talked to in the last couple of months that they are just petrified of what's going on in our world, what's going on in our nation, what's going on with COVID, what's going on with our, our unemployment and the work environment, our finances, our economy, all these things, and they're afraid. And so this message is one of fear not, and we're going to see that, especially in the first several chapters here uh, as we begin in chapter 40. So chapters 41, 42, 43. We're going to see the assurance of God's pardon. You would think, after all we've studied in nearly the last years, we've been journeying through the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, we've seen the children of Israel mess up a fair amount. Amen? Uh, that ought to be a wonderful blessing to you that if after God's chosen people who understood fully who God was, messed up as bad as they did, God is still a God of pardon. He loves us. He has a plan for our lives. And if we will repent, if we'll turn from the things that we have purposed in our heart to do wrong, he is a pardoning God. And then finally, one of the things that I, I just take so much comfort in myself is just simply the presence of the Lord. It's like I... I went into my office this morning, and I, and I sat down, and quite honestly, there was just this heaviness about the day. It's like, Lord, it's like, is this ever going to end? And just all of a sudden, it's supernatural. It's like, Jeff, I'm right here. I've never left. I, I was here before you got here. I'm going to be here when you go home. The presence of the Lord. And church... I don't know what's been going on in your life, but I know for mine, I have actually really had to endeavor to stop watching news for the most part. I've had to just simply turn it off and say, God, it's not that I don't care. And I know it's not that you don't care. But this news that we're getting right now, there's almost none of it that's good news. It seems to all be bad news. That's where the Hebrew people were. That's where the children of Israel were. It's like every bit of news was not good news. And so if you've been suffering through that, this chapter is for you tonight. This is the beginning of a new part of the book of Isaiah. And it begins with the wonderful word, verse 1, Isaiah 40, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. God is and always has been the God of comfort. He, he delights to comfort his children. And, and I'm sure all of you who are parents can understand this to some degree. That when your children have had a fearful experience, they've woken up from a night terror, maybe something has happened out in the yard, perhaps they were at school and something desperate and dire occurred. When they get home, when, when you see them in their room cowering in fear, they are not looking forward to getting a, a further talking to or a lashing. They need comfort. They need you to wrap your arms around them and hold them close and say, it's going to be okay. That is our God. He is the God of comfort. When the enemy comes like a flood, he holds us. 
Verse 2, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Anybody looking forward to that day permanently? That the warfare of this earth, the battle, the things that we face as believers would end? And notice how that happens, that her iniquity is pardoned. You see, without the forgiveness of sin, the sin remains. And if the sin remains, there's no relationship. And if there's no relationship, there's no heaven You see, all these things are actually predicated on that salvation that is given to us as a gift. The Lord loves us. This is so new covenant in the old covenant. This is the heart of it. That her iniquity is pardoned. She's received double from the Lord's hand for all of her sins. And so out of this comes this incredible voice of God's pardon. He says, look, I I want to forgive you. I've already allowed you to be chastened. And that time is over. And God now turns his attention to comforting them. And verse 3 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so this is the passage that John the Baptist uh, echoes verbatim in John's gospel. They're in John chapter 1, verse 23. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, that's what John the Baptist was actually doing. He was preparing for that voice of the Lord Jesus himself. That's why when he was asked if he was Messiah, he said, no, it's not me. And if you remember that scene there in John chapter 1, the Pharisees came to him because he was, John the Baptist was so popular that Herod ultimately, Herod the Great, ultimately has him beheaded. And Herod Antipas after him, uh, all, all of a sudden fixates on him, and he actually thinks ultimately that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And so... John is speaking, and as he's speaking, the Pharisees say, well, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you Jeremiah? Are you the Messiah? And John the Baptist says, no, no. I'm just simply a one preparing the way in the wilderness, the highway of our God. I'm, I'm just here to make him known to you. You see, the reason that Scripture exists is to make him known. It's to make Jesus known. It's so that we would have a way to understand. The Word of God really is a way for us to understand and know the Son of God. It's a way for us to know the good news of the Gospel. It's a way for us to have communicated to our hearts and our minds who God is, what God does, how he functions in this world. And so John's just simply proclaiming Jesus. And Isaiah sees this. Now imagine this is almost 700 years in the future. So here's Isaiah in in 686 or so, riding in Jerusalem. The children of Israel have had every kind of imaginable terror come upon them. And he says, comfort, prepare a highway for our God. It's going to be okay. Notice what he says next, verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low, and the crooked places made straight, the rough places smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall, shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In other words, God's going to smooth it out. God's going to make it okay. He's going to provide that path where there seems to be no path, that way where there seems to be no way. That was the glorious day that Jesus was revealed to the world. When John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, one could say that that was the greatest announcement that had been made on earth up to that point in time. There would be one that would follow three years later. I think the the greater would be to tell us, it is finished and Father forgive them for they know not what they do. There would be a greater announcement made by Jesus himself. 
but of men. It was said of John the Baptist that there was not a greater man that ever walked the earth. And what did he do? He did nothing but proclaim Jesus. He did nothing but tell the world about the king. For me, that's the message that I need right now. It's like God is still on the throne. He's still king. He's still Lord of heaven and earth. There is still none like him. There's no one that can overcome his plans. He hasn't lost a lick of his power. God, God is not made in the image of us. We were made in the image of him. He, he, he is not lacking in any way, shape, or form the resources necessary to see us through every moment of what we face. And I think it's good for us to remember that right now. God sees our frailty. God sees our weaknesses. God understands that we are dust. And so he says this, comfort. Verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is, is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field, and the grass wither, and the flowers fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely people are grass, and grass wither, and flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Look, the truth of the matter is, if it's not COVID, something else is eventually going to take our lives. Amen? And so we, we focused in on this pandemic, or maybe we focused in on some cancer, or we focused in on some form of cardiac disease, or we focused in on the fact that we're getting on in age, or we focused in on, man, that's a big bus coming, it's going to run me over. But the fact of the matter is, all of us are like grass. We're, we're all going to have an expiration date. I don't know where yours is. I don't know where mine is. I, I can't find it. There's no way that I know when my time is up. There's a date stamp on each of us. But the truth of the matter is, the word of God stands forever. It's not, amen, it's not ever going to be untrue, church. You're not going to wake up and, oh man, God just fell off the throne. God doesn't have any power. God can't save that person. God, I don't know what's going to happen if that person wins the election. I have literally listened to Christians throw their hands up in the air and tell me that if a certain person wins some kind of an election, that all of a sudden the church is not going to exist anymore. That is hogwash. Why is that? Because the church is greater than this world. It's God's family. We're the superior force, okay? Now, we may get challenged. We may suffer all kinds of difficulty. But the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. Amen? So, so it's like, what is this nonsense that we're all, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen. Our God reigns. That's what's going to happen no matter who wins, no matter who loses. Should you go vote? Absolutely. Should you vote with Christian morals and Christian viewpoints? Absolutely. Should we be praying for godly rulers so that we can rejoice? Absolutely. But don't put your hope and trust in an election. Put your hope and trust in the God that Isaiah is proclaiming in this chapter. He's got it. Our, our country doesn't. Yes, it matters practically who is the Supreme Court justice. But if God isn't greater than our Supreme Court, then we are already dead. Let's leave God God. That's why James said life is a vapor. We're in chapter 4. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. 
And so Isaiah speaks of that frailty. It speaks of that brevity as he's saying. It's like Jesus actually put it more concisely in Matthew 24. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. To all the things that we, we think about, think about them from a heavenly perspective, guided by what the word says. One generation's going to come, it's going to go. Another generation's going to come, and it's going to go. There is going to be a final generation. The Lord's going to snatch away his church, and then Jesus is going to come again. There will be a final generation, but the word of the Lord will stand throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and ever, church. So don't lose hope because of something that's happening in our world. Place your hope in the King of kings and in the Lord of lords. Verse 9, O Zion, you who brings glad tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring those good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up and do not be afraid, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Church, Jesus is coming again. This is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah a second time. Not just the first time. He is going to come again. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Who's coming back with King Jesus? It's you and I. The armies of heaven. Angels and saints. That's who's coming with. That's his reward. Jesus died for people. Jesus didn't die for a gold crown, a diadem. He died for you and me. In that sense, we are his reward. When we show up in heaven, he's going, there they are. When we come back with him, we're coming again. It's work. His reward. And he will feed his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs with his arm and carry them with his bosom and lead gently those who are with young. That's not our world today, is it? But it will be. That's actually what lies ahead. It's still in the future a bit, but his word will stand forever. And what he says, he will accomplish. And if you want to see this in the New Testament, it's in Revelation 22. Behold, Jehovah God will come with a strong hand. His arm will rule, and behold, his reward is with him. And before him, behold, my reward is with me, is exactly what Revelation 22.12 says. The very end. He's going to feed his flock like a good shepherd. Why do you think Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd? Is who he is. He's never lost any of his sheep. We're about to get there in Luke's gospel. Jesus is a good shepherd. No, he's not a good shepherd. He's a perfect shepherd. He's a great shepherd. He's a masterful shepherd. He will not lose any that are his. He knows everything you're going through. He knows where your problem areas are. He knows where your weak spots exist. And actually what Jesus says there in John 10 is that if necessary, he will lay down his life for his sheep. So much he loves us. And so Isaiah, seeing this work of Messiah, of King Jesus, declares it. He says, look, this is who's coming. This is who the Messiah is. These are all new covenant things that Isaiah sees. And verse 12 goes on to, to give us this incredible picture of God's majesty and his power. You know, I'm stunned sometimes at, at how little we can make God. Amen? Maybe you don't do that. I do that. You know, I wake up and I, if, if my email inbox has more than 50 in it, it's like, oh man, God fell off the throne. It's like, you know, we, we just so limit God sometimes. 
It's like, well, I can't. And, and really what I'm saying to you is I, I begin to look at things because I can't do them. Not because God can't do them, but I can't do them. And so God is limited by what I can't do. That is not very intelligent on my part. Nor on yours. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or measured the heaven with the span? Now think of this. And we'll, we'll delve into a little bit of this just for a good giggle. And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in the balance. Now I really believe that why the Lord through the Holy Spirit has Isaiah write these things is ponder what has just been said there. That is the span is the distance between the tip of your little finger and the tip of your thumb. That was a common span. A cubit was from the tip of your finger to the tip of your elbow, generally about 18 inches. And, and so what Isaiah is saying here, from God's perspective, the hollow of the hand was known when you cup your hand. This is the hollow of the hand. So think about this for a second. From God's perspective, he holds the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, the Antarctic, and the Arctic Ocean in the cup that is made in the single hand. How big's your God? My God holds the sum and total of the waters of the earth in his cupped hand. Think of what else is said there. He, he measures the heaven with a span. So, Currently in astrophysics, if you were to ask somebody who's studied in such things, they will tell you that we believe the known universe as much as we can know it, which is all a very educated guesstimate, is about 91 to 93 billion light years across in diameter. That means if you were on the far side and you made it to the other side, that if you had a star begin to emit light, it would take 91 to 93 billion years traveling at 186,000 miles per second for the light to make it from one side of the galaxy to the other. My God, that distance is the span of his hand. Now see, they didn't know that. In fact, they didn't know as Einstein would figure out, and then we're kind of in a place right now do we believe that light is no longer a constant, that it's actually not, uh, as Einstein's theory of relativity declares, a constant. It's not always traveling at 186,000 miles per second, that maybe it's actually slowing down and has since the supposed Big Bang. But my God says that the distance of the universe is nothing more than the span of his hand. Or that he calculated the dust of the earth by putting it on a measure. In other words, he grabbed what you would grab in your kitchen, a measuring cup, and goes, well, there's the total of the dust of the earth. Or weighs the mountains in the balance. Now think about it. Most people, when you ask them, what's the tallest mountain on earth, they immediately say Mount Everest. Well, that would be true if you're considering above the waterline of the Pacific Ocean, but it's actually Mauna Kea on the big island of Hawaii is about 6,000 feet higher if you measure it from the ocean floor where it starts. And God says, well, I just scoop up all the mountains and put them on a scale. Church, how big is your God? How big is your God? It's a question for all of us. When you get in an airplane, anybody else mesmerized by flying across the United States and looking down as you just like, it's like, man, what city is that? Where is that? You're traveling probably 535 to 580 miles an hour at that point in time. You're covering some good ground. God holds the universe in the span of his hand, he's going, oh, that's, uh, that's Alpha Centauri over here, and 
Well, that's the Milky Way galaxy, that little tiny dot that's right there underneath my fingernail. How big's your God? Our God is infinite. That's why Colossians chapter 1 declares this amazing truth from verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, that he is Jesus. He is firstborn over all creation. For by him all things that were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. You see, we, we didn't know, Paul certainly didn't know when he wrote the church at Colossae. He, he knew nothing. He didn't know about molecular biology. He certainly didn't know about atomic particles, nuclear structure, quasars, quarks, hadron particles. He didn't know about any of that stuff. And yet... The Holy Spirit says things visible and invisible because the entire universe that is visible is also made up of invisible things. How big's your God? Whether thrones or dominions, that's every governing ruler, every king, every kingdom, every president, every prime minister, Every group, all 193 nations on the face of the earth, God knows exactly what each of them is made out of and made for. Principalities and powers, whether it's a heavenly being or an earthly being, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Before there was dust in the universe, before there was a singularity that was the beginning of the Big Bang, if you believe in such things, before there was dark matter, before there was interstellar space, before there were galaxies, before there were planets and stars, there was Jesus. And he holds the universe in the span of his hand. I'm asking you tonight to leave God big. If you leave God big, your problems will be small. But if you make God small, if you make him your size, then your problems will be big. Before all things, and in him, all things consist. He's that glue that glues all matter together that we can't figure out. We don't, we don't know why the universe is made up mostly of empty space. It shouldn't hold together, but it does. If God can hold the universe together, he can hold your life together. He can hold you together. He can take care of your family problems. He can deal with the fact that our economy is messed up. That we have a crazy political cycle going on right now to where people can't talk civilly one to another. My God, if my theology is correct is absolutely able to do anything. Make sure your God is that big. Make sure he's that big. Again, that's why they call this the book of consolation. If he can comprehend the dust of the earth in the measure, and we don't know exactly what that is, but we believe that the sands of the sea is 10 to the 25th power or so. That's a lot of grains of sand. If God numbers grains of sand, what do you think he thinks about you? That's inert. doesn't matter. If you were to kick a few billion of them off this earth, it wouldn't make a dent. It's a huge amount. 
Who can count it? I got one for you. Who cares? God did. Who numbers the stars? Really, who cares? God did. You, you see, if you have a God that's that big, then that God can do anything. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, verse 13? Or who has, as a counselor, taught him? I love this part. He goes, this incredible creator-designer that, that has a handle on cosmology and cosmogony and astrophysics and why the universe works and how much of it there is and what is space and what is dark matter and what is matter itself and what is antimatter. God's got all that under control. God said bang and the universe was. But he's not just in charge of the physical world. He's got a handle on the spiritual world as well. He's got a handle on your mind and your heart. So no matter what it is, you might say, well, who's been God's professor? Who sought to direct the Spirit of the Lord to make things the way he did? It's nuts. I want to challenge you. Be interested. If you have a propensity towards it, study science. If you study science, you're going to go, man, God's unbelievable. He's awesome. I was sitting there watching. We have a little fountain in our backyard, and every morning we have hummingbird wars. The hummingbirds come, and they, they attack one another. It's all in good fun. There's no hummingbirds harmed in the making of our morning thing. And you sit there and you watch them, and it's like they technically should not be able to fly. But they can. They should not be able to get nutrition the way they do it. Their, their tongue is, is stored inside of themselves is longer than their body. Figure that one out. Would you like to have a tongue that's longer than your body? It's like, where do you wrap that thing? And yet God makes all this incredible diversity and some of them are red and some of them are orange and some of them are green and some of them got the ugly gene and we don't know what they are. But who taught God to do that? We were in Zermatt, Switzerland, and I did not know this, but the world's smallest hummingbird exists in the Swiss Alps. It is about the size of a bee. And we thought that there was this bee buzzing around the bottom of this 800-year-old chalet that had been built up in Zermatt. We're looking at it, and I actually got a photo of it as good as I could stop action. iPhones are pretty amazing. There's a hummingbird the size of the tip of my finger. Now why do I share that with you? Because if God can pack all of that technology into a hummingbird and get it to take in enough nutrition to power it so it can flap its little tiny wings, you know, like 1,800 times a second, back and forth, Whatever it does, I don't know what it does. It's, it flies. not supposed to. Who taught God how to do all that? Because we as human beings still cannot replicate that technology. We can't do it. God does it for fun. It's like I'll show them. With whom did he take counsel, verse 14? Who instructed him? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Now, I'm going to be careful here. But I'm telling you, no matter who we have on the Supreme Court, they're not going to be able to judge like God judges. It doesn't matter who sits on that court. If there's not a God in the court of heaven, we're all in trouble. We focus in on human institutions. God's watched human institutions come and go for thousands of years. 
He's still here, and those institutions are not most of them. You happen to be blessed to live in the world's oldest democracy. They generally do not work, by the way. And in fact, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to the United States and looked at what was going on here, said, the moment we figure out how to give ourselves gifts, we're doomed. Guess what? He was right. You see, as great as this is, the United States of America is not eternal. Every endeavor, everything that we do takes on the stain of our sin. But nothing God does is stained that way. All he does is perfect and right and just and true. And he goes on in verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket, counted as the dust on scales. Look, he lifts up the islands as a very little thing. You ever wondered where the phrase, a drop in a bucket, came from? It's right here. It's a biblical one. Now, I don't know how many of you, you know, you've got your Home Depot bucket in your garage and you go out and fill it up with water. Maybe you're going to water some plants or something. Imagine going out there and concerning yourself with a single drop in that bucket. Amen? Either of our two Labradors have like a gallon of drops in their drool when they drink. It's like they shake their head and there's like thousands of drops that go wherever they've, you know, they're standing. The nations are as a drop in the bucket. Think of it. God looks at the UN and goes, drop in the bucket. God looks at the United States Congress, drop in the bucket. The United States itself, drop in a bucket. And in case you didn't get it, he counts it as the dust on the scales. You see, if you were alive during that time and you went to weigh something, you use a set of scales, typically a balanced beam with a couple of pouches and or some flat stones that were leveled out. If you wanted to impress someone with your integrity, you would hold them up and then you would blow the dust off the scales because you certainly wouldn't want anybody paying for dust. Amen? And God says that the nations of the earth are as futile as the salesperson who tries to impress you by blowing the dust off of his scales. Think about that one for a second. That the Lord goes, there's America. That doesn't mean he doesn't care about us, but they're insignificant in the eternal plans of God. They're here for a time and they're gone tomorrow. They're moved around by the breath of God. The islands of the earth. God's going, eh, not that big a deal. You know, we worry about all kinds of things, and we should concern ourselves. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. It's not like these things are humanly unimportant. But when you compare them to God's ability to handle things, they're not that important to God. God's not looking at the coronavirus going, man, I can't believe that got out of Wuhan. You know, he's not doing that. He's not going, oh, I don't know when they're going to come up with a vaccine. He could instantaneously impart a vaccine into someone's mind right this very second. They would have a perfect vaccine. God's capable of doing that. And you're probably going, well, why won't he do that? I don't know. All that does is tell me that he has a plan and a reason he's using the things that we're going through for something in his plans. But he doesn't need our instruction. And he doesn't need the way we do things. He is quite capable without us. So who is like our God? Well, the answer is no one. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering, for all the nations before him are as nothing. When you read in your Bibles the cedars of Lebanon, 
the hills of Lebanon, just north of modern-day Israel, used to be covered with cedars. And the cedars there, you kind of look at the Middle East today and you go, there's no trees left. Well, it's because there's been human habitation for thousands of years. They've deforested everything. It's the reason that Israel has embarked on this program. They've planted something on the order of 500 million seedlings all over the country uh, to reforest a, a very large portion of Israel. And if you go to Mount Carmel, which used to be completely devoid of trees, it actually has trees today, but there used to be in the hills of, of Lebanon, which would include Mount Hermon and down to the coastal areas, very large cedars some of them in excess of 130 feet high and more than eight feet in diameter. So there were large cedars, and, and God's saying, look, Lebanon's not sufficient. It's like a firewood to me. The nations before him are nothing. They're counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. Now, I know you're sitting there saying, well, you can't talk about America like that. That's not exactly what's being said here. God is basically saying, look, when you compare me to the nations of the world, I'm not really all that concerned who the president of the United States is. That doesn't mean he doesn't care at all. It means that God is not bound by whatever our president does. God is not hindered because our Congress acts one way versus another way. God is not looking at the United States and going, man, I can't believe they passed that law. I, I'm completely crippled now. I don't know what I'll do. The UN voted me out. Here in America, we, in essence, voted God out of our schools, didn't we? Did God stop working in our world because we voted him out of schools? No, he did not. Has God failed to save people's souls as he quit working in mankind's behalf because of coronavirus? No, he did not. And so the point that Scripture is making, the point that I'm saying to you tonight is, don't turn God into a man. He's not. His ways are so far above our ways, we can't know them. That's why he says the nation's or a drop in the bucket. They're nothing. They're worthless. To whom then will you liken God, or to what likeness will you compare him? Well, the answer is pretty simple. No one and nothing. Amen? That's why he sits above the circle of the earth, as we'll see. A workman molds an image, a goldsmith overspreads it with gold. If you talk to someone whose understanding of, of the Hindu religion they're up to like 33 million gods now. Everything's a god. Bugs are god. Cows are gods. Rats are gods. Stars are gods. Leaves are gods. Everybody's gods. Everything is a god. And so during this day and time when someone went to worship something, they would go get a piece of wood or a piece of precious metal and they would carve an image of their god. A workman molds an image. A goldsmith overspreads it with gold. In other words, takes and covers it. Puts a veneer of gold on it. And a silver, silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. In other words, if you can't afford gold, you can't afford silver, you go out and get a piece of wood. And he seeks for himself a skilled workman to prepare a carved image that will not Potter or fall over. <laughs> this is how God views what we worship relative to who he is. So if you're worshiping money, if you're worshiping power, if you're worshiping passion, if you're worshiping something other than God, God says to, to him, that's like you going out and grabbing a stick, making an image of a God, and then hoping it doesn't fall over. You get it? That's how God sees our efforts to worship things other than him. And he's saying, why would you want to do that? You can have me. Have you not known, verse 21, have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. See, those that say that the Bible teaches 
that the earth is flat uh, have no understanding of what the Bible actually says. Because both Job and here indicates this word can be translated also sphere, that God sits above the sphere of the earth, the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. In other words, God looks at the earth and he goes, oh, here's this little, you know, it's like you hold your little snow globe. You guys like snow globes? We've got some really cool snow globes that we've gathered from all over the place. And you shake those up and there's like this little snow scene in there. And it's like, that's kind of how God looks at the earth. It's like, yeah, that's just a little part of my creation. It's right here in my hand. The inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Interesting, the language here seems to indicate that Isaiah got a picture of an ever-expanding universe, that he stretches out the curtains, that they continue to move, that they're spread out like a tent to dwell. They're just a dwelling. The heavens are just simply God's handiwork they were created for man to look in awe at and go, where's God? And so when you look at this, when you read this, the greatness of God, who are we? We should be in awe of him. We should be in wonder of him. We should desire to worship him. He sits above us. Job actually understood the concept of, of space, interstellar space as we understand it. Job in Job 26 says that the same he hangs the earth on nothing. We didn't know that until Johannes Kepler came along. Until we finally had the ability to look out into space a little bit through Galileo. And said, hmm, there's other things out there. And they seem to be quite a ways away. Verse 23, he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely they will be planted. Scarcely they'll be sown. Scarcely their stock shall take root in the earth. And then he will blow on them and they will wither. And a whirlwind will take them away like stubble. He's talking about the governments of mankind. It's like they take root for a while. They last for a while. Think about all the world empires that existed. Chinese Empire, Egyptians, Carthaginians, Medes, Persians, Greeks, Romans, the Anglo-Saxons, all of the incredible African tribal groups that exist all over the continent of Africa. Think about mankind in general. We haven't done so good at lasting very long, have we? And whether you think it's the Mongolian hordes or whether you think it's the Chinese rulers or whether you think it's the United States of America, every single one of those groups has had it today. But they've all faded from history. Not one of them's lasted indefinitely. And none of them will. So no matter what our laws end up doing, and again, we should want godly rulers. We should vote to that end. No matter what they do, no matter how they plan, no matter how they plot, whether it's an R or a D, or whether they're conservative or liberal, whether it's red or blue, no matter what happens, there is a God that is still in charge of the universe. Amen? And so to that end, don't get caught up like Habakkuk. Show me no more, Lord. This whole thing's going down the tubes. I don't want to be here when it happens. Well, there's still stuff for us to do. That's why we're still here. To whom then will you liken me? To whom shall I be an equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. The stars by number, he calls them by name. 
Astrophysicists believe there is something on the order of 25 sextillion stars and or bodies that you can see in the known universe. God names them by name. And it's not, you know, there's Arcturus or Prima Centauri. He calls them Bob and Joe and Fred, I guess. I don't know. He calls them by name, by greatness of his might and by the strength of his power. And not one of them's missing. God's not going, man, I didn't know Uranus was out there. I can't believe I missed Pluto. Now God knows. Who do you liken God to? He is the superlative one. Amen? He's the superlative one. It's not our form of government. It isn't all the things that we are blessed to have. It's the Lord omnipotent who reigns. Who created these things? Who named these things? Who knows where they are? It's him. Who tracks you? Who tracks the sparrows? Who tracks the grass? Who knows where all those things are at every nanosecond of existence? It's God. It's God. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, that my just claim has been passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? Amen? His understanding is unsearchable. Is that who your God is tonight? I pray it is. Notice how this finishes. If it's not one of your favorite verses, I hope it will become one. He gives power to the weak. And those who have no might, he increases their strength. And even if the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord shall be renewed in their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. The comfort of God is, have you not heard? He's the everlasting one. He's the all-powerful one. He's the one that neither faints nor is worried. He is the one that has all the answers. His knowledge is unsearchable. He gives power to you when you're weak. He is the one who increases your strength when you don't have any. If you're young and you're lacking power, God was always more powerful than you anyway. And even if you fail, God won't. God won't. And so we have to wait on him. We have to wait for the Lord. And church, I know many of you are struggling. I think a lot of people are struggling. But our God is up to the task. He's up to the task. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He won't leave you as an orphan. What you have need of, he has more than enough of. And so have a big God that loves you supremely enough to number the hairs on your head, to know your comings and your goings, to know your rising up and your laying down, to know your beginning from its end, that says about you this, I love you. My thoughts towards you are good. They're not evil. They're a future and a hope. That's the God that holds the universe in the span of his hand. It's the same God that loves you personally. Rest in him. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. We have a new thing going on, and I, I'm not sure we're going to embark on it tonight, but as you can see, we actually have prayer 
tables and tents set up. So if you need prayer, um, we are going to have some pastors up front. They would love to pray with you. There's something going on in your life. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us, Lord, when we make you small. Forgive us for putting you in a human box. Lord, forgive us when we panic over the conditions of this earth, when we throw our hands up in the air and say, woe is me. Lord, help us to leave you big so that our problems can be small. And Lord, I pray for those that are hurting tonight. God, those that their their minds are troubled, they're overcome by the thoughts that have coursed through their minds this week, this day, this night. And Lord, would you, by your amazing spirit, Holy Spirit, come and fall afresh upon us and renew us. Take our fears and fill us with faith. Take our pain and give us joy. Take our uncertainties and give us the certainty of heaven. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are the God of comfort. And Lord, we receive that comfort by knowing who you are, by resting in you and trusting in you. Lord, we want to wait upon you. We want to mount up with eagle's wings. We want to run and not grow weary. We want to walk and be strengthened as we journey. Lord, help us to be like William Carey said, I I can't do much, but I can plod. Lord, some days are just us plodding along. Help us to plod with joy. Be filled with your spirit and accomplish much for your kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.